The scripture reading today is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of a rushing water, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. This is the word of God. So, um, our text this morning is the final message on these, this fall series, as already mentioned, um, on the table. The table is an expression of God's generosity to all, to all who would come. That's the amazing thing, isn't it? All who would come. And we're invited again around a meal in this passage. The celebration um, is another celebration of marriage. We started the series with marriage, the marriage of uh, uh, at Canaan of Galilee, where, where Jesus turns a hundred and thirty gallon of water, uh, gallons of water into wine. <clears throat> I bet you they had a real party after that. And and we end, we'll end the series again around the table and, and on another marriage celebration, chapter nineteen of Revelation, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Recall for a moment of the marriage receptions that you have been part of or you have been participating in. Think about it for a minute. Isn't it time when all, for all involved to celebrate? Marriage all over the world is a celebration. Doesn't matter what tribe you come from, what language you speak, right? Marriage, the marriage meal is a joyous occasion. This is the image that St. John wants his church to envision. This is the future he wanted his church to see. The marriage supper of the Lamb is preceded by the word hallelujah. Hallelujah. Our text tells us that the song sung, is sung with a roar, like a roar of a mighty or great multitude. 
and heaven itself shakes with the, with the sound of this roar as it fills its space. Hallelujah. Literally means praise God or praise Yahweh. Four times hallelujah songs are sung. Why this incredible outpouring of joy? Well, those of you who've had a near-death experience will understand more than most, I think, the relief and the joy of being saved, the jubilation of being rescued. Hallelujah, indeed. However, we, we cannot fully appreciate St. John's vision without referring to the latter chapter, uh, verses of chapter 18. Chapter 18 is focused on the demise, demise of the great harlot. And the contrast is stark, right? The harlot whose life and influence are characterized by violence, exploitation, sorrow, and death is set against the bride, right? Who is described by purity, righteousness, joy, and life. And the three laments of Revelation 18 are contrasted by the songs of praise in chapter 19. The first three hallelujah, praise to God, is for salvation the rescue of his people from the injustice they were suffering. So I've categorized it in, in these three ways. The, the hallelujah is, uh, comes out of deliverance from the influence and control of the great harlot, for her deeds are finally righteously dealt with and judged. And the defeat of the great harlot is eternal. She will no longer ensnare and use and manipulate humanity anymore. And the devotion of the saints, their response is worship and is praise. No more will we be bullied or persecuted and martyred because of who they are, God's children. The first line of this song is about salvation. God saved his people by defeating their greatest enemy. The second hallelujah rejoices that this enemy will never rise again to threaten God's people. And the third hallelujah is a call to God's people to worship and to praise. Here the rejoicing of God's people erupt when they discover that they're free and they're safe and they have a future. If you've ever seen films of the liberation of Europe, you have a taste of this, what this liberation feels like. Those liberated from the cruel hands of Nazis literally shout for joy, embracing their liberators. Parties erupt spontaneously and lots of wine was drunk I believe Eugene Peterson makes this observation the great whore is presented with an implicit contrast to the virgin bride for the whore sex is for the service of commerce with the bride sex is devoted to love for the whore sex is a contract the bride sex is a life commitment for the whore sex is a calculation but for the bride, sex is an offering. What, a, what an incredible contrast, eh? When you think about these, these two images. The great whore is not about sex, though. It's a metaphor for worship gone wrong. Our innate desire for God, where every human being made in the image of God have this sense of God in the hearts, this innate desire for God is twisted for something else, for power, for wealth, for control. 
And finally, freed from the influence, control, and violence of the great harlot, God's people break up in joy, break out in joyful worship. And the worship is focused on giving thanks to God for what he has accomplished in Christ. The fourth Halloween, which is what we'll be focusing on this morning, is the crescendo of the outburst of worship, the celebration of the marriage feast of the Lamb and the Bride. St. John exiled in Patmos, stirring up the imagination of, and the emotions of his congregation, helping them to see their destiny. That one day, one day, when all is ready, they will be taken as a bride is taken by her husband. John, Jesus says it in John 14, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. Right? Using language easily understood by Middle Eastern culture, Jesus plays the part of the bridegroom, leaving his betrothed wife for a while. And in that culture, the bridegroom would return to his father's house, build a new addition for his wife and himself. And as he brings his bride home, there would be feasting and song. This is the image that St. John is conjuring up in the minds of those first hearers of this passage. They're invited not as guests, but as the bride. She is whom all heaven has been waiting for across the millennium. The fourth hallelujah involves 24 elders and four living creatures falling down and worship the one who was seated on the throne. It's a recalling of Revelation chapter 4, where the same 24 elders and four living creatures turns up uh, to face the throne and to worship. If you're curious about the symbolism of the 24 elders and four living creatures, I recommend uh, Daryl Johnson's book on Discipleship of the Edge. I mean, he has a he explains very well what they're all about. But what we wanted, what I wanted to do is focus on this morning on this scene of worship. Why is worship an appropriate response to uh, God's people, of God's people to God's revelation? As you know, many libraries are filled with this topic, but for our purposes this morning, I, I want to suggest three, three reasons. The first is reorientation. Worship reorientates our vision from this world and all its challenges and troubles and suffering to God's world and God's word. Our text begins with these words, I heard, right? I heard. And what happens when you hear something? You know, you stop by, by a, a stoplight, uh, you know, on the road and you hear the sound, you turn around, right? What was making that sound? What, what truck is doing that? Who would play that kind of music in the middle of the stop sign? Anyways, maybe you guys don't do that, but <laughs> I sometimes do it. So I turn around and say, who's doing what? We, sign, we see the same reaction in Revelation chapter 4 when St. John says, I looked and I heard. And the act of why is the act of hearing and looking important? I think it's important is because in the process of hearing, you turn your head to look at where the sound is coming from. And this looking is an important exercise to get your bearings straight, to get your bearings straight. Where am I? And the act of worship helps us to reorientate, especially with the questions, who are we 
why are we here, and where are we going? Art historians would know that's from Gauguin, right? <laughs> if you remember, if you look at Gauguin, some of Gauguin's paintings, who are we, why are we here, where are we going? And we still ask these questions of ourselves. And we'll never discuss it, and we'll never discover its meaning unless we find our true north, the true north of our lives, which is God, who is God. It's only then that we can be, begin to determine a direction for our lives. That's why setting a aside time like this to gather um, every Sunday is important to our humanity, to our souls. It helps us to get our bearings uh, straight and to discover our humanity. That first and foremost, who we are is that we belong to God. That's who we are. We belong to God. And when John sees, looks, he sees the throne. It's mentioned twice in our passage, but it's it's mentioned almost every on every chapter in the book of Revelation. Forty-seven times the throne shows up. You know, the, Susanna read the, the throne again, right, in, in, in Isaiah chapter 6. Right? Only two times does it, does it refer to false centers. Um, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13 and 16. But the throne, most of the time, all, the rest of the time, it refers to God's throne, the center of power in the universe. Eugene Peterson observes, a throne centers authority. Worship is centering. And in worship, God gathers his people from all nations together around this center. A friend of mine was uh, uh, told of the story when she was in Jerusalem during, um, yeah, during Resurrection Sunday. And they all met in Garden of Gethsemane, a group of them, and they were making their way to the tomb. And uh, as they were making their way to the tomb, some young people from Germany began to sing, How Great Thou Art, in German, right? And then next time, and then somebody else joined in another language, and in another language, there was Chinese, German, English, Tagalog, every language of the globe was represented at that time. And she thought, this is it, isn't it? All the barriers and co of color and language, culture, were down. And they, for that very that moment, were one. And this is what worship does for us. It centers all of us, no matter what our background, no matter what our past, no matter what race of two. We center ourselves to God who sits on the throne and removes all human barriers as we encounter the living God. Peterson goes on to say, failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasm at the mercy of every advertisement, every, seduct every seduction, every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated life. People who do not worship are swept into the vast restless, restlessness epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. Isn't that true? Huh? Worship reorientates our world around God's word and God's world so that we no longer need to be pushed and shoved and pulled along by the forces of the world, of this world, that wants us to conform, right? It wants to mold us in its image. 
but in worship we're, we're to be transformed as our minds are renewed again in God and Christ our Savior to see the world as it really is from his perspective. Reorientation. The second uh, uh, point I want to make is uh, worship develops in us a life of rejoicing, choosing to hope for a better day. Hallelujah for our the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and um, exult and give him the glory for the marriage at the supper of the Lamb and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, clothed her in fine linen and bright and pure. Participation in the marriage meal includes an invitation to rejoice. Over 160 times in scriptures, uh, there, there's this invitation to rejoice. 38 times in the Psalms alone. Rejoice means delight in something. The word joy means to a, a feeling of great happiness evoked by well-being, um, success or good fortune by the prospect of possessing what one desires. And the reason for their rejoicing, our God reigns. Our God reigns. Especially, it's especially important when we think of the times in which we live. It doesn't look very good, does it? I mean, Pastor John already prayed about the situation in the Middle East, and there's Ukraine, there's Iran, there's, there's all kinds of issues around the world. But in the middle of this, all this, the people of God reforientates our vision to heaven. Our God reigns, no matter what happens. Paul said this to his church in Philippians, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say rejoice. Your, re your reasonableness to be known to everyone. The Lord, he says, is at hand. And in Paul's letter, it's an imperative, a command to rejoice. It is an imperative to give to a, given to a church experiencing great struggles. He writes in Philippians 1.27 these words, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Right? The reason for their joy, Paul qualifies it by putting it in context, in the context, in the Lord. The source of our joy is not based on the circumstances of our life, but the most important relationship of the, our lives. The Lord's, we're his no matter what. And Paul, writing to the Philippians, is looking forward to the imminent return of Christ. John, writing to his congregation, paints, paints a picture of what that return would look like. But both Paul and John are informing us that the story is not over. That the story is not over. The end is yet to come. I have a friend who has a... Who has a I guess it's a, I don't know, troubling uh, uh, habit. And it, whenever he picks up a book and sees the author that he doesn't know, he would read the pre preface, and then he'd turn to the end of the book and read the last few pages. So when I says to him, I said, why do you do that? He says, well, you know, if the beginning of the book is okay, and the end is good, 
all is good. <laughs> all is good. And that's what, this is what it's about. This, this is what John is saying. This is what Paul is saying, right? The end is good. All is good. An invitation to rejoice is a challenge for us to intentionally reorientate our attention away from the current circumstances of our life to the God of our lives. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Because if you are like me, it's not the things in my life or the adventures that I've been on that gives me the greatest joy. It is always the greatest joy is by, by sharing with the people in my life. My wife, my children, my friends, my church. Without them, my life would be quite empty. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, Loving God means rejoicing in Him, being eager to think and pray to God, rejoicing in God simply because it is God who is involved and we are permitted to know Him and have a relationship with Him. But rejoicing, I think, is a discipline where we assert that we are not nobodies. We're not accidents of some cosmic chemical reaction, but that we are people who are wonderfully and fearfully made, chosen, as Paul says, before the foundation of the world. Can you imagine that? Chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ. Loved, loved, loved beyond our understanding. Rejoice in the Lord. He's near. Rejoice in the Lord because he reigns. And worship peels back the veil of our reality to see the greater reality is that God is king. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And the last uh, reason for, re uh, for worship is resistance. Worship is an intentional act of resistance to the force that wants to tear us down. Revelation 14.1, there's an image of 144,000, a symbol of the complete number of the people of God. The name of God is written on their foreheads. And in verse 3 we read, they sang a new song. They sang a new song, offered their first fruits. Worship in acts of singing and sacrifice is part of the arsenal they have at their disposal. Here they are, the people of God, at the time of John, harassed by a political system bent on their extinction, facing swords and clubs and wild beasts and torture and death. And they're told by their pastor, here is your weapon. Sing songs. Sing songs. Live sacrificially. And to the untrained eye and ear, this seems to be completely absurd. But John is dead serious. And Rome is no more. But the church is still here. Resistance. Some of the, uh, you know the story of Maximilian Colby, the Catholic Catholic priest who offered himself to die in the place of another man in the death camp at Auschwitz. So 10 men were chosen to be thrown in the building, thir uh, building 13 to die by starvation and thirst. The horrible uh, suffering which should have been felt by all through the screams and cries of desperate men. 
whose intestines are closing up and his tongues are swollen by thirst. In that particular time, that was all myth that was missing from that group of men who was led by Maximilian Colby with prayers and songs. And according to a witness, Bruno Bergoviec, I hope I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly, assigned to clean up this terrible event, even to the last, last, very last moment, as Colby raised his arm to receive the deadly injection of carbolic acid into his veins. He, prayers was whispered from his lips. And this worshiping man has taken the sting, right? He's taken the sting from forces bent on torture and mayhem. If worship was able to disarm such a horrible situation, think of what it does for our everyday life. Revelation 14, 7, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. So let's, friends, let's make room in our hearts and our lives for worship, reorienting our vision to God, rejoicing instead of rejoicing instead of giving into the despair and resist the temptation to be conformed to the values of this world. I know that many of us may be going through difficult times today. I know I am. Some of us are facing real threats to our health and our well-being. Many of us are suffering through no fault of our own. And others around the world are experiencing war and death and famine. What the scripture is clear about is that we live in a fallen world. Sin abounds. It leaves a trail of illness, brokenness, and economic trouble, pandemic, wars, etc. But here's what the scripture says. Where sin abounds, Romans chapter 5, verse 20, grace abounds much more. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Abounding grace is fully expressed in this last meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb, for which all of us in Christ will one day participate. This is our sure hope. This is our destiny. And as we celebrate the Lord's table today, let us uh, be dressed, let it be a dress rehearsal for that final meal. We will be sharing with our sisters and brothers throughout the ages that day, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The focus of chapter 19 in St. John's, uh, chapter 19 in St. John's vision of salvation is composed of two polarizing elements, a meal and a war. The marriage meal we see at the end of chapter 19 gives way to the warrior who's seen sitting on a white horse, riding up to make war. An odd image when you think about it, doesn't seem to fit very well together, and yet they profoundly do. Peterson makes this observation. Salvation vision appears is an invitation to this meal. The power of the Eucharist meal is to keep us participating in the essentials of salvation. It's impressive. This is the primary way that Christians remember, receive, and share the meaning of our salvation. Christ crucified for us, 
His blood shed for the remission of our sins. This is where we affirm the action of our salvation. Why we know what we know and believe of Christ in his incarnation and what we expect and hope in Christ in his coming. Brackets are present lives in this large context and this ordinary setting. We celebrate our salvation. This meal which we are about to partake takes us in the very center of the battle. Christ's broken body, Christ's blood shed were weapons of mass destruction against evil. And in what seemed like his weakest moments, our Lord unleashed a death blow to the power of evil. St. Paul puts it this way. He forgave our sins, having canceled the written code with his regulation that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them on the cross. So as we participate in this meal this morning, we declare, yes, our world is a mess, but God is still on the throne. Yes, the world is unfair, but God is still on the throne. Yes, his church is not all that it could be, but God is still on the throne. No matter what, God rules here. He loves his church. He believes in this church. And one day will present her pure and holy and beautiful display to be his bride for the entire universe to see. Hallelujah. Maybe we could say that four times, eh? Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So sin, do your worst. Christ is risen. Christ is coming back again. And we are not afraid. Hallelujah. hallelujah. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.